Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Peter Hoskin, Books and Culture Editor here at Prospect, and today's episode starts with a film that was released, well, I guess you could say that it exploded into cinemas last week. It's a film that takes one of the most important and terrifying objects of the 20th century and constructs a powerful character drama around it. And it's got people flocking to the multiplexes to experience its megaton power on the biggest screens imaginable. But enough about Barbie. Let's talk about Oppenheimer. See what I did there, Matt? The old, the old comic switcheroo. It was very, very good. Very, very funny. Yeah, I expected nothing less. Um, but but we, are, we are actually here to talk about Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. And more, in fact, about the bomb, the culture, and how the two things overlap. I, I've already mentioned the name of our guest today, Matt. Matt Dancona, but I guess I should introduce him properly. Matt is a contributing editor here at Prospect, as well as outside of Prospect, an editor, an author, a columnist for various publications, including the Evening Standard and the New European, where you've also recently launched a new podcast, right, Matt? Called The Two Matts, yeah, with the editor-in-chief and founder of the New European, Matt Kelly, which is proving a lot of fun. We're only, I think, we're recording our sixth episode this week, so tune in, everyone. <laughs> well, I would say go subscribe to that, but only after you subscribe. Only to after you subscribe, prospect. prospect. Um, and I, and I should also say that over the years, by way of introduction, Matt has become my nemesis. This is his other role. Um, so I guess he's a kind of Edward Teller to my J. Robert Oppenheimer. <laughs> uh, I, I I don't know why I commissioned him to write the lead art story for the summer issue of Prospect, which was on nuclear culture, um, but I did, and he did, and it's what we're discussing today. Matt, hello. Thanks hello, for coming and on the well, board. thanks for the commission because it was very, it was very interesting to do. It was a very interesting piece to research, indeed. Uh, well, thank you for writing it. Um, should should we start with Oppenheimer? Yes, the film, the film, and and I should probably say I'm, I'm sort of taking it for granted that people have heard of this and possibly yes. even seen it, but it is Christopher Nolan's new biopic of the man who is genuinely credited as, and I've seen these words a trillion times over the past few weeks, the father of the bomb. Yes. So Oppenheimer is the man who led the Manhattan Project that delivered America its atomic bombs at the end of the Second World War. Matt, do you want to give your sort of 30-second capsule review of the film, and then I might give mine? If sure. You... Well, I, I've seen it twice, and I want to see it again, which is a pretty good way of kind of char- characterising what I think about it. It's not p- perfect, but I, I was absolutely... Um, polaxed by it. I found it very, very powerful, and it, it's based it's based around Oppenheimer the person as much as the whole question and ethics of 
nuclear warfare and the, the, the development of the bomb at Los Alamos. It goes, uh, it, it, half of the drama is set after his, uh, his successful development of the bomb. And it's about what happened to him afterwards as much as it. Killian Murphy is amazing in the lead role. Stellar cast, including Matt Damon as General Leslie Groves, who was the military figurehead of the Manhattan Project. Emily Blunt as his wife Kitty, Florence Pugh as Jean Tatlock, his uh, lover, and so on and so on. It's an amazing achievement. So um, there, there, one can sort of explore the, the 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 small flaws, but overall, I think it's a triumph. I really do. Do my view, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm. I think I'm a bit of a Nolan heretic, in that by far my most favourite film of his is his last one, Tenet. Which, that is a very contrarian view. <laughs> most, most people think of his worst. Yeah. But what I love, I kind of love that in Tenet. I love the the abstraction of the yes. Bond movie, how it just takes beautiful men, beautiful women in beautiful tailoring, in beautifully shot locations, doing preposterous things where kind of doesn't matter what they're doing or why you just go along with it. And throws them into an M.C. Escher print. Doesn't <laughs> yeah, it? no, exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and I really, I really got on with that. And I think actually the, the reason I mention it is that's where I get on with Oppenheimer. Yeah. So the more it's an abstraction, the more it's about a guy and the atoms in his head. Yes. And cross-cutting of time and visions and German scientists popping up. I loved it. But then the more it becomes about plot, and I think that's towards the last third of the movie. With Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, as where... Lewis Strauss, who is his nemesis, the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission. Exactly, who, in his senatorial Who, who tried to get his, his Oppenheimer's security clearance revoked. It became, You're right, it becomes more of a conventional biopic. Though. Yeah, and, and the more conventional it is, the more I tuned out, I think. The, the other thing I'd say about it, and I, I, I think it's a good movie overall, but God, I think... Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh, both of whom you've mentioned, and both of whom are two of my favourites, they were a combination of underused and weirdly used. Uh, uh, you know, it's interesting, like, my, my top beef on a fairly short list would be you've got two of the greatest actresses in the world, right? And they're, they're barely... I mean, they both have important parts in the film, but not for long. And you're right. There's some. There are some quite unusual uses of them, which have proved <laughs> barely. Hundreds. Barely is the word. Barely is the Pugh. word in Florence Pugh. Um, like, I've, Christopher Nolan doesn't do many sex scenes. No, um, but as he, I don't think I've ever seen one before, and I hope I never see one again. Yes, because the use of Florence Pugh is it's so cringe-inducing in just how far Nolan's going to make a sex scene that is not about titillation. It's just so desperate, I hate and, it. And also the the notion that Oppenheimer's famous words, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds, is actually the sort of textual equivalent of Viagra. It's not necessarily a good look. But I, I, I feel, I mean, I think I'm more devoted to the film than you are. I'm really, you know, I want to go and see it again now, you know. Okay, okay. Well, we'll judge you for that. Absolutely. But let, let's move on to some yes. extent from Oppenheimer because there's actually a lot more to talk about. So much more, yeah. And that's kind of the point. And it's the point of your essay, I think. Well, the film, um, as you originally envisaged the piece, was really just a peg for a, a look, a survey, if you will, of nuclear culture since 1945 when the bomb was tested. And, and it's a huge subject and... I mean, it's all, you know, one could write a book about it. I, I actually came from it from a really stupid angle, which is I, when, I, when I heard that Nolan was making Oppenheimer, I kind of commissioned an article in my head that was basically 
at last Hollywood is grappling with nu- the, the nuclear bomb. It's grappling with the atomic bomb. And I thought in a way that this was Christopher Nolan's Schindler's List moment. Yes. So not only is he doing something big and serious and historical, but Hollywood is too, in a way that it hasn't before. And then I thought about it for five more minutes and I thought, no, that's really stupid. Because actually I remembered the scene of nuclear holocaust in Terminator 2. I remembered 1950s sci-fi movies like Them, yeah. where irradiated ants wreak havoc on society. I remembered Doctor Strangelove, of course, and I realised actually Hollywood has been doing the bomb for decades, and yes. that's just that's just Hollywood. Yeah. You know, like if we think about Japan, there's almost a genre of nuclear literature, nuclear film, absolutely, um, Britain, anime and so forth. Yeah, you know, yeah. we we've you mentioned these in the essay, but you know, in Britain we've had TV shows like Threads. The war game, and so on and so on. I, I guess, I guess, in a way, my first question for you would be like, it's everywhere, isn't it? It is everywhere, and I, I suppose that's the point, which is that there's a great book which is in and out of print, but worth snapping up if you, if there's a. I think it's only used now on, you know, you have to seek it out, but it is available. Called Bomb Culture, which came out in 1968 by an activist and writer called Jeff Nuttall, mm-hmm. and his sort of starting point is that the, um, the 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 space between VE Day, Victory in Europe, and VJ Day, the Victory in Japan, when you know was 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 when obviously the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki went off. And his contention is that that is the moment everything changes. Because the the atomic bomb as it then was, the much more powerful H bomb um, developed by Edward Teller, um, didn't come till later. But his point is that at that point, essentially, you had an older generation, in his words, abolishing the future. And so out of that spilt teenagedom, um, the kind of nihilism of, of some 50s culture, uh, huge amounts of genre fiction, which we can perhaps talk about in a bit. And Nuttall sees this as a sort of defining moment in human history, social history. And I think that's probably right, because it wasn't just about what these, you know, incredible and powerful and terrible weapons did, literally, although that's important. It was about what their existence did to what it meant to be a human being. And that permeated everything. And it permeated culture high and low. And in some respects, it was genre low fiction that that was more obsessed with it in it than you know traditional fiction and so on. Now you say that the dropping of the bombs was the moment when everything changed, but there were there are changes within the cultural response yes. to the bomb as well. So one of the things that struck me from your essay was at the beginning, culture's response, particularly in America, was almost jubilant, triumphal. It was jubilant. I mean the backdrop to all of this is that and often forgotten is that the Manhattan Project was not initiated to develop a bomb to use against the Japanese. It was a, a race with the Nazis who had Werner Heisenberg, one of the greatest quantum physicists of the 20th century, at the head of their project. And um, they were ahead of the Americans, the, the, the Germans. So initially it was assumed that if the Americans got there first, the target would be Berlin, which plots out an entirely different history of the world. And there's a good line in the film, which is absolutely spot on, which is one of the few advantages the Americans had was Hitler's anti-Semitism, because 
Hitler hated the new physics of the 20th century, Einstein's work and then the work of other prominent Jewish scientists and called it Jewish science. And so it took the German apparat quite a while to get into a position where it could use all the Jewish experts that were still in Germany, and they, a lot of them left, um, to to work on it. And that helped um, Oppenheimer to, you know, make up the ground that, that it had been lost to Heisenberg. You're right. That, that actually is one of my favourite moments in Oppenheimer. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. Where Oppenheimer says, you know, how can we win this? And the one word answer is anti-Semitism. Yes. And I'm, it's absolutely true. Hitler, Hitler was genuinely suspicious of all this, which he saw as a threat not only to his contention that Jewish people were the Untermensch, but also, as you know, he was, you know, very interested in paganism and magic and so on. So he, he was he was a total philistine when it came to science, as well as, uh, you know, obviously a rampaging anti-Semite. So, so in the early days, <coughs> the achievement of the bomb is wrapped up with the achievement of beating the Nazis yes. in a race. And yes, well, race, uh, but also so there's that. But them. by the time they actually, when the Trinity test happens, the, the successful testing of the device in Los Alamos, um, the gadget as it's called euphemistically, um, the Germans have already been defeated. And the crucial question is, do they use it against Japan? And Harry Truman, president by then, and crucially Oppenheimer himself, um, say it has to be used and it has to be used on people. Various of the scientists at Los Alamos wanted it either not to be used or used in a uh, non-inhabited location uh, just to show the Japanese what the power of the bomb was. But Oppenheimer, for all his later qualms and sort of self-flagellation over the creation of the bomb, was foursquare with the military on this. It had to be used and his logic was it has to be used so that the world sees that it can never be used again. And this will be the bomb that ends all wars. And I think there's a moment where Niels Bohr, the sort of great, arguably the greatest scientist in the world at that moment, who managed to escape Nazi-occupied Denmark, and he's played by Kenneth Branagh in the movie, says, is it big enough? And Oppenheimer says, to end the war. And Niels Bohr says, to end all wars. And that was the logic. Um, and so, as you say, Pete, the, the, the initial response in America was, you know, there were songs and there were cocktails and, you know, in celebration of the atomic bomb. But also there was a, there was a presumption that we were entering the atomic age, which would make medicine and transport and agriculture and entertainment better. And, and it was very celebratory. So it wasn't for a while. And I think when, I think a, a book, I know you're a big fan of John Hersey's Hiroshima, Hiroshima which initially appeared in The New Yorker, came out in, I think, 46. And people started to gradually become aware of what, A, how terrible the impact of this weapon was in very human terms. And then, um, as it became clear that in, in 1949, the Russians develop the bomb, so they have it, and the Americans pursue the H-bomb. Oppenheimer hates that. His colleague, Edward Teller, breaks with him definitively and says, no, we have to have an advantage. You know, the military and uh, Truman, the Eisenhower, agree and so the h-bomb gets developed and suddenly you're in a situation where you know the prospect of armageddon is real and people get start getting very scared and rightly so and so there's a desperate attempt for everyone to build shelters and the whole premise changes from this is the event that ends all wars to we've only just begun so in, in a way 
the music literally changes because the, the mood, music the mood, literally changes. The mood music changes. The mood music changes and the culture changes. So as you mentioned earlier, that suddenly science fiction comics, superhero comics are drenched with um, either post-apocalyptic scenarios uh, or it's, it's, it's interesting how many superheroes gain their powers from radiation. Um, it's everywhere. Exactly. It's everywhere. Um, and it, it's also in high culture as well. And there are all sorts of, uh, uh, there are books like Neville Shoots on the Beach, which um, Eisenhower's administration tries to uh, oppose. And then there's a, more importantly, a movie made by Stanley Kramer of that book, which again, the US administration tries to um, not not close down, but to oppose on on the ground. where they can. Basically. Yes, but I mean it's 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 a very it's a brilliant film and very yeah. sort of gloomy image of a post apocalyptic scenario. Um, and the, you know the, the the White House is powerfully aware that this is being seen by Americans in movie houses everywhere, and this is not the image of the nuclear capability they want them to go away with. So, I think one of the things I'm keen to nail down is. Is this culture, like, is this Hollywood, is this writers just picking up on something that in the fullest sense of these words is big and spectacular? Or is there something bigger going on? Because, like, I'm struck by the part of your essay and you've nodded towards it, alluded towards it today, that teenage culture came out of the bomb. You, you draw a very direct line, and perhaps Jeff Nuttall does in his book, from the bomb to James Dean Marlon Brando, Catcher the Rye, and I'd extend it to the birth of Marvel Comics and yeah. as we know it in totally, the 1960s. Yeah, yeah. Can, can you talk a bit more about that? Like, it seems to me that there is a before and after the bomb in a very Oh, absolutely, way. 100%. I mean, one of the things about the bomb is that it's obviously, in the most obvious sense, its sheer scale makes it have an incredible gravitational pull to creatives because it's you know, literally the biggest thing ever. And so it's very hard not to think about it. But it's destructive power and the kind of the way in which the stakes have changed from the total war of 1939 to 1945 to something which is even is not just total, but possibly, you know, terminal. I mean, this, this is this is a kind of warfare that might end civilization. And so to your point about the 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 invention of teenagerdom now, I'm not saying it's the only strand in that there were lots of things that played into that but certainly the idea that um, the older generation could not be trusted because it had created this device that meant that teenagers might not have a future at all and one must remember that you know this was against the backdrop of the korean war and then in the 60s vietnam you know the, and the cuban missile crisis um of course in 62 you know that this was these, these were not hypothetical situations it was suddenly the case that young people were thinking I might not live much longer and that created a kind of hedonistic rebellious tribalized fashion oriented rock and roll oriented culture that really and you know you know I've, I've discussed the past the extent to which in a way most of the elements of the 60s were actually created in the 50s and that that's 100% the case here. Yeah, I mean, you cite the Beat Generation. Where yeah, yeah. The bomb haunts their work. Absolutely. I mean, they do. Interestingly, Allen Ginsberg, Kerouac, others don't engage with it full frontally, but it's just always there, like a migraine. You know, it's it's impossible for them to write without referring to it, and and they often do. 
And again, we keep saying this, but that's kind of the point. It is entirely the point. Like full frontal, uh, as you put it, full frontal analyses of the bomb are the tip of this particular iceberg. They are. I mean, you know, it's interesting that that, that there have been. So we've mentioned hers is Hiroshima. And, uh, you know, others went on to do that. Jonathan Shell's book, The Face of the Earth, which I think was in 1982, was another kind of attempt to write in cool language what this meant. And that was very influential on the next generation of writers, particularly Martin Amis, who Mm. picks up uh, The Face of the Earth in his collection of stories, Einstein's Monsters. But these literalist accounts, you mentioned earlier, Threads, you know, that fantastic and terrifying documentary that came out in 1984. You're right, they're only the tip of the iceberg. The more interesting bits, in a way, are the way in which it's in everything that happens elsewhere. And that's, you know, that's that's in a way, the, the cultural legacy of the bomb is that you can't escape it. And even, I think, since the end of the Cold War, you know, there was a period between, let's say, the fall of the Berlin Wall and Putin uh, announcing after the invasion of the Ukraine that he was more than ready to use tactical nuclear weapons, where it sort of goes off the radar a bit. It's not, there are, apoc- there are apocalyptic fears in culture, mm-hmm. climate change, you know, the pandemic and so on. But nuclear war doesn't really figure high on the list. And Oppenheimer, the movie, was made, you know, before the invasion of Ukraine. But, you know, it is in the worst possible sense, horribly timely. Yeah, it's weirdly prophetic. It is weirdly prophetic because all this now is suddenly, in the worst possible way, extremely topical. Hollywood, I mean, had definitely turned towards climate. Yeah. Because it's sort of disaster du jour. If you think of the sort of Roland Emmerich... Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, or or plagues. You know, Station Eleven and so on, which was turned into, a, I think, an underrated TV series. You know, and so on. And so, you, you struggle to find nuclear or, or directly nuclear culture between the end of the Cold War and uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Although, as you mentioned, the Terminator movies are a very good example of the way that it lingers. Yeah. So there's that amazing scene in the second Terminator film where the incarcerated Sarah Connor, the mother of the future messiah of humanity, John Connor, has a sort of nightmare about image of... Uh, it's one of the most powerful um, images ever, actually, of uh, in movies of, of apocalyptic disaster, of nuclear disaster. So it's still there. And I think Blade Runner... Um, which was before the end of the Cold War, admittedly, but that 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 at least the the book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, Philip K. Dick, is based on a post nuclear um, setup. So it that continues in science fiction, but not much else. Yeah, and and, and also as well, post apocalypse. Again, you mentioned this in in your essay, but um, books like A Canticle for Leibovitz, like. What why are we at a post apocalypse? Is the is the question that these books raise, and and generally it's post nuclear. It is. And, you know, but that changed. I think like The Road, Cormac McCarthy's great book, The Road, doesn't specify. And and then there's also a kind of a shift to zombie outbreaks like I'm Legend and, um, you know, uh, World War Z and so on. So th- there are other, 
you know, speculative apocalypses that have taken the place. Although I kind of think that they're still doing service for nuclear weaponry. And nuclear weaponry really um, revved up modern culture when it came to, you know, thinking apocalyptically. I think there's even an argument that it gave us the apocalypse as, as we see it today. Yes. We we went from religious apocalypse 100%. in history to this idea of a radiated wasteland. Yeah. And and that persists even in climate apocalypse. It persists in zombie apocalypse. Yes. You know, this idea that we're all in bunkers, locked away, and there's a grey ashen space outside. That is the 20th and 21st century idea of an apocalypse. And even in sort of films that are not, well, so to take two films, uh, Bergman's The Seventh Seal is high, high, drenched in religiosity. Yeah. But I think it's also in its own totally subtextual way, a kind of nuclear film. Because oh, almost not subtextual. I mean, maybe the, you're right, yes. The Dance of Death at the end. The Dance of Death at the end, precisely. Society dancing to its end. And then specifically The Sacrifice, Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky's last movie, which I think was 86, is is explicitly about a man who sacrifices, uh, does a sort of deal with God, that he'll sacrifice everything he loves if a nuclear conflict can be avoided. And it's it's always there. It's always there. And it does... It's interesting you mention um, the religious sort of aspect because, you know, one of my favourite books is The Pursuit of the Millennium by Norman Cohen, which is all about that, the, the sort of millenarian thing. And you can see those strands entering into particularly sort of what you might call art house cinema, that, that there's a link between that old religious apocalypticism and post-nuclear apocalypticism. And they're, 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 it's all part of the same human impulse. Yeah. After the break, we'll talk more about how the bomb has influenced the culture. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to Prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 per month. Visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and subscribe now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Matt, there's a couple of other things I'd like to tease out from your essay. One you've slightly mentioned already, which is Martin Amis. Yes. So you quote him as saying that a lot of nuclear um, culture has, I don't want to use the word retreated, but it's moved towards the sidelines. It's moved towards genre fiction. It's moved away from sort of high literature towards sci-fi, crime books, comic books, 
those areas. Um, you know, I, I mean, would you would you like to talk about that? I yeah, know. no, I mean, I think um, well, the, the 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 extracts I took were from a essay um, that Amos wrote as the preface to his collection of nuclear-inspired short stories, Einstein's Monsters, which I think is one of his most interesting sort of attempts to to deal with, the, if you like, the deeper questions. I mean, as he, as he grew older, that became more and more his mission. And the preface is very candid in his admission that he doesn't know what to... I think he uses the phrase, I don't know what to do with nuclear weapons. You know, they make me sick. And his argument is that you know, all ages are different, but this one is different, different, because the stakes are total. And I think he's right that a lot of creative people have found it hard to to deal with the immensity of it, because where do you go with with this? Where do you go with something which is essentially talking about the end of the world? And hence his argument, well, I don't think it's an argument, I think it's just a correct observation that a lot of it has gone into genre work and film noir. I mean, Kiss Me Deadly is a good example of a movie yeah. that's totally impossible to imagine without the nuclear era. But it's interesting that, that the culture needs it to be it to deal dealt with somehow, but when high art struggles and naturalistic art really struggles, it goes into you know pulp fiction and science fiction and comic books and things. It's very interesting. Is is that sweetening the pill? Is it just because we, we can't deal with the documentary version of it? Or is it actually because it's the best way of grappling with ideas of the infinite and the cosmos and the atom? That, but I think, and I think we'd probably agree on this, that it's a big mistake to dismiss the centrality of pulp fiction, genre fiction, comic books, graphic novels and so on. We certainly agree. We certainly agree in, in, in how a culture deals with things. And... You know, so some people I think would say, "Oh, it's just genre fiction." No, no. I mean, the the you 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 recommended to me the Manhattan Projects series of graphic novels, which are absolutely terrific by Jonathan Hickman. Absolutely excellent, great. and I, I was, a, was very grateful for that recommendation because I I was only able to just mention them, but they're really really good. And actually, in in that series, you see these issues being completely examined i mean it's it's very subtle as well as exciting so i i think that it's not so much sugaring the pill as culture doing its job and it's interesting the way that genre culture often sort of shoulders the burden that the more sensitive high artists if you like find difficult to the other thing i'd like to tease out matt from your essay and and this is actually more implicit in your essay so We've talked about Christopher Nolan, talked about Martin Amis, we've talked about James Dean, Jack Kerouac. <laughs> uh, you can probably see where this is, is going. Uh, you mentioned Don DeLillo in your essay. Who else have we mentioned? Cormac McCarthy. Um, the point is... What have they all got in common? Yeah, well, it's all very masculine. It is very um, masculine. And, and I would say, like, obviously, of course, women artists and writers have engaged with the nuclear age. Um, so um, Yoko Ota is a prominent yes. example, the Japanese writer. Um but these touchstones that we're alighting on are often by, and dare I say, for a certain type of man. Well, um, it in a way we've gone full circle because you mentioned at the start, and I think absolutely correctly, the the, the marginalisation of the Florence Pugh and um, uh, Emily Blunt characters in yeah. in the film, 
And seeing it again uh, the other night, I I was struck more powerfully by how much it's, it's so to speak, a boy's own story mm-hmm. in the most sort of biblical and horrific sense of that word, because there's a du- Oppenheimer's duality and his neurosis and breakdown is that part of him, of course, is especially after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, horrified by what he's done. He says to Truman in the famous encounter, Truman played by Gary Ullman in a yeah. wonderful cameo, I have blood on my hands, Mr. President. And he devotes much of the rest of his life to try and rein in the fire that he's created. But he did create it. And not only did he create it, but he collab. And what Groves, General Leslie Groves, who was the, you know, the, the military supremo at Los Alamos, or indeed the whole Manhattan Project, saw in Oppenheimer was that he had a he had an ambition and a sort of masculine drive. He was, you know, a very highly sexed Oppenheimer. He loved being admired. He loved being the center of the attention. People would go to his lectures three or four times just to hear him again and, and again and again. And, you know, he was he was not the shy retiring scientist at all. And he was very persuasive. And he and Groves toured the country recruiting these amazing minds saying, you've got to do this. And and it is very, you know, it is a very, the bomb is a very patriarchal um, product because it what it what what it does is it just says we will use, we will harness the deepest most violent form forces in nature to destroy you, and Oppenheimer is down with that. He's he you know he explicitly says, I'm up for that at the crucial moment. You know the crucial moment where he could have stepped in was. Let's just do a demonstration in Tokyo Bay or something, you know. No, no, you know, he says it has to be used on, and it has, and it has to be used on a, a sufficiently large city where there are lots of, inevitably, there are going to be lots of civilians. So, you know, there was, Oppenheimer, for all his sort of, you know, he was quite very slight, and Killian Murphy's very good at, at creating that slightness. Mm-hmm. But he fancied himself as a warrior. There's no question he wanted to be the guy that won the war. Now, he also wanted to be win a Nobel Peace Prize and be the guy who ended wars, which didn't work out. But, but that was the other side of the coin, you know, and it's easy to forget the first side. So I think it is, very, it is, no, it is a very masculine thing. And you, you listing those people just demonstrate the point is that, that not just the creators of the bomb, but the people who've kind of acted as gatekeepers, cultural gatekeepers of its impact have overwhelmingly been guys. There's no question. I do think there's probably something also embarrassing going on, which is, and I'm going to have to get personal here and talk about us, because I, when I watched Oppenheimer, I kind of saw myself mirrored in it. And I don't mean in no, I know Oppenheimer you're himself. I mean, possibly in Christopher Nolan, actually. I kind of, I watched that film and I thought, yeah, I get it. Here's a kind of like literary kind of dude who liked reading big doorstep biographies, um, who likes celebrating mad genius, who... Um, who I who I guess you know thinks about like thinking about the the cosmos in a cup of coffee, yes. and in a way, there are worse ways to spend your time. That's fine, but it's also a bit portentous, yes. and it's also a lot pretentious. Well, it, it is, and and I think the 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 stunning sequence of the Trinity test, the, the testing of the gadget, um, is one of the highlights of the film. There are two bits in it that really struck me. One is that. Um, when Oppenheimer is is uh, shown looking through 
the, the, the screen in these goggles, it, he could be a film director. You can just tell that Nolan is identifying with him explicitly, frankly. And the other is that the bit where Teller, who, Edward Teller, who really thinks that the atom bomb is a sort of pea shooter compared to what he wants to go on and do the hydrogen bomb. There's a wonderful moment where he, the bomb goes off and you see it, the light reflected in his dark goggles and the most terrifying smile creeps across his features. And I realize, of course, that's a reference forward to Dr. Strangelove yeah. because Dr. Strangelove, the character, was based on Teller, who went on to be the father of the H-bomb and you know, said in, when Oppenheimer came up for, to have his security clearance renewed, revoked, spoke against him and, and continued to speak against him in public often. And so it, it, you're right. I mean, one, one has to admit the horrible, you know, the, the sort of Yatesian, the terrible beauty of it all is not, it's not to men's credit, but it's a very honest account I, Matt, I, I can hear it in your voice. Yes, I no. can hear it in my voice. I think we think this stuff is cool no, on one yeah. level, like it's terrible and horrifying. But we also think it's. I cool. think. Look, I mean, I did. I did Barbenheimer. Okay. Yeah. And it, it was. I'm, I'm, we should say that's the that's the double seeing Barbie, Barbie and Oppenheimer on the same day. And um, I'm glad I did it because it was a fun thing to do. And I'm also glad it happened because it's been fantastic for the UK box office. And you know, you and I often sort of worry about cinemas closing and our local cinemas closing and so on and, and and so just on that level alone i'm happy that it happened as a phenomenon because it was a very successful weekend for the uh, box if i think i think the biggest since avengers endgame or something, something like that, that. Yeah. but it was you know really really done well and i suspect a lot of people went to see oppenheimer who wouldn't actually to do the barbenheimer so i saw oppenheimer first and and then went off to um every man king's cross to watch barbie and everyone in in the Barbie show, and of course, was wearing pink and having fun, and and I was not in the right mood for it. I must go and see Barbie again because it, it's a very very clever, um, beautifully scripted. You know, who who wouldn't like Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach? I mean, it's as sharp and brilliant as you expect. But I was sitting there thinking, you know, bombs, you know, apocalypse. Well, what do I think about this? You know, uh, I was just in the wrong frame of mind. The top tip: do Barbenheimer the other way round. I think so. Actually, top tip. Now that the Barbenheimer sort of craze has passed, see them separately because it, it, Barbie is a is a remarkable film, but it you it, it gets consumed in the fire of Oppenheimer, and that's not fair. But just to return to your point, Pete, and this rather embarrassing admission of mine, which is that I think it's it's no accident. I want to see it again and again and again, and I got the. I bought the screenplay, which is, cool. it's not cool at all. And I've been listening to the soundtrack. And I think that, you know, this is, there's something disreputable about this. You know, this is not succession we're watching, right? It's not a bit of fun. Um, it's all about the harnessing by men of the most elemental forces to terrible, awful effect. It reminded me, actually, the, the, the point you were making, it's funny, I was reminded of Ian McEwan, wrote an oratorio about all this a while ago, which I wasn't able to mention in that it wasn't space. But in it, he basically says, it's all about guys. And there's a line which is, shall there be womanly times or shall we die? Which is a pretty clear what he's saying. And, yeah. and it's kind of, you know, busted, I think. 
So, so, I, and also, look at look at what has happened now. I mean, you have strongman leaders like Trump threatening fire and fury, and Putin uh, talking regularly about using tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. It's it's a massive sort of show off, isn't it? It is it is about display, and it is that was one of the things that struck me about is how much theatricality there is in it. So in the movie. When Oppenheimer is off to he's off to do the Trinity test, his wife Kitty, played by Emily Blunt, says "break a leg," which is what you say you know before a show or a play, as if it's as if it's a performance. And and Nolan at the beginning again very explicitly brings in the right Springs, Stravinsky, the Wasteland, Picasso's pictures, and Oppenheimer kind of relishing all this and clearly seeing himself as a hero artist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, some art. Should we should we replace centrist dad in the cultural lexicon with something like bomb New, bloke? Bomb bloke, yeah. Atomic man. No, I, I I think that's that's right. And and you know, again, the 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 people we mentioned in the fifties. I mean, Holden Caulfield in Capturing the Rye says, you know, if they're, if they're, if they're going to let off the atomic bomb, I want to be under it, you know, or on it, on top of it. And the crazed military guy who who actually attaches himself to the the bomb in Strange Love, you know, th- th- there's something psychotic, but but um, I wouldn't quite say relatable, but you know, it is because <laughs> that really would be. I know what you mean. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. it, it's clear what's being said here. So it is. I think it is very gendered. So so Matt, it pains me to say that your essay is very good. Well, thank you. Um, but. I would also say it it felt like it was straining against the word count. Like Oh god, you, yeah. You could have written four times the length, ten thousand well, words. What what did you what do you feel you missed out? I'd like to I mean there was something we, we discussed briefly and I think would have been is 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 a sort of um essay all in its own or its own and it and it speaks to what we've just been discussing, which is the the need to knock down the hero scientist. Because this was an age in which Scientists, obviously starting with Einstein, but then going through Niels Bohr, Heisenberg, Oppenheimer, Edward Teller, and so on and so on, became central to the culture. And they bloody loved it. You know, even Einstein, I mean, when I was digging into this, I, I went back to Isaacson's biography of Einstein. And even he, you know, Louis Mayer wanted to make a film about what had happened at Los Alamos. And Einstein initially said, it's terrible, this doesn't reflect humanity at all. But then they tweaked the script and he said, okay, I'll put my name to this. <laughs> so even the father of the whole, the, the, you know, the grandfather of it all, the man who's supposed to represent moral purity, um, was was into the, the kind of... Um, the showbiz. Aspect. The showbiz and the, and the swagger, I think. Um, and I think there's, so I think there's a whole other piece to be written about... Um, you know, some of these characters like John von Neumann, who came out of uh, the Manhattan Project, and a lot of them amazingly wanted to use the bomb preemptively against Russia yeah. um, before it had a nuclear capability in that crucial period, 45 to 49. Their, their argument, unbelievably, was, well, they haven't got it yet. We better use it soon because once they do have it, um, it'll be an even match. Um, and Oppenheimer is by that by then has undergone a sort of conversion. They say no, they must have it in order to kind of equal equalize the killing field. 
But there are plenty of scientists saying, you know, let's strike while we have the ability. And uh, so there's a kind of insanity descends upon the scientific community and it and they they love being on the cover of time you know they love it and you can see some of that i think now again happening in the ai era it's not necessarily the scientists but certainly the the entrepreneurs who are most associated with this new and in its own way terrifying development in technology absolutely hoovering up the kind of their centrality to the culture, to the extent that you have Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, you know, wanting to go off and have a cage fight in the octagon in Las Vegas. I mean, there's a theme developing here, isn't there? And, and Matt, and so in the interest of wrapping things up, yeah, bit, because as we've established, as blokes, we do, well, blokes, yeah. about, we do, we do also like to talk about bombs. Yes, which three items? Because there's a lot mentioned in your essay. Which three items of nuclear culture would you recommend? For our listeners, and Goodness, I, I, I might a, add one at the end as well. Please. Well, I think that certainly for the for a sort of account of what really happened, Herzi's Hiroshima is a short and brilliant book. I think, you know, although I absolutely love the sacrifice, I think Doctor Strangelove is the greatest atomic movie, and also has something which we haven't talked about, which is satire. Satire has been a very important part of nuclear culture. And I, I suppose one has to mention probably, well, is it rude to mention Oppenheimer itself? I mean, I, you know, I, I'd like to, or do you want one of the, one of the others? You can mention Oppenheimer. I mean, I do, I, I do think it's, it's, it's worthy of inclusion in the, in the trio because it's woken up another generation to all the, all the above. Okay. So um, add your well, I'll be greedy and I'll add two instead Dude. of one. Um, one is a film that you have actually mentioned in this podcast, but I don't think you mentioned in your essay or in the or in my list list of ten films that you wrote to accompany your essay for our website. Yeah, and that is Kiss Me Deadly. Um, yes, that's a very good, deeply that, interesting film. Nineteen fifty-five, I, I think, think so. Directed by Robert Aldrich. It's film noir, as you said. Superb film. And it starts off with a private investigator, Mike Hammer, who's played by Ralph Meeker, and uh, he picks up a hitchhiker. And then begins one of those kinds of naughty Chandler-esque plots. And it's got um, the best MacGuffin in the history oh, yeah, of no, MacGuffins. Yeah. So you don't quite know what's going on, uh, except you do know it ends up with a box, a literal box with something in it. Referenced for movie fanatics out there in Pulp Fiction. Indeed, indeed. But the one in Pulp Fiction is... Different. <laughs> different. <laughs> And far more safe, I think. I, but, um, well, so far, yeah. Is that what when, we think? When so. that box is open at the end of Kiss Me Deadly, you know, the, the effects are cheap by Oppenheimer standards, but I don't think I've seen as chilling a version of it. Yes, you're right. I mean, actually, it's, you know, this is a whole, that is really, it's a whole other uh, discussion, but film noir yeah. and the bomb. I think we could we could do it a, a solid hour on, you know? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's there. I mean, Kiss Me Deadly, it's explicit. But actually, film noir post forty five is film noir. Is it. It's the undialogued version of it. Bomb era paranoia. I think absolutely. I mean, the the kind of the the total looking over the shoulder and the constant sense of doom is is absolutely full of the spirit of um, Trinity. It really is. And the second thing I'd mention actually is um, a video game because we haven't mentioned games. Oh yes, and. No, and the bomb is central to video games. Yeah. Um, there's series like Fallout, yeah. um, Chernobyl, the Stalker series, which are all around 
nuclear paranoia. But the thing I'd recommend, it's not subtle, it's not clever, but it is in, in the same spirit as the Terminator 2 sequence. It's very, very powerful. And that's in, I always forget whether it's the first or the second Call of Duty Modern Warfare game. There's a sequence in that that took people by utter surprise at the time, I remember, about a third of the way through the game where you're flying away from, you're a Marine or something, and you're flying away from your latest engagement and a nuclear bomb goes off. Right. And you die and all your comrades die. And it's shocking and it's visceral. Yeah. And like I say, it has, if you enjoy might not be the word, but if you enjoyed the the Trinity test sequence in Oppenheimer, you would like Call that. of Duty has that too. So yeah, they're my they're my two additions to the good ones. And I'm glad you mentioned gaming because, as you know, I don't know anything about gaming. But it, 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 clearly, it's it's impossible really to talk about contemporary culture without reference to it. So Matt, I think we should probably stop being probably bomb blokes. Bomb blokes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so, so bye there. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and as loath as I am to direct people towards other podcasts. I think people really should check out Matt's new European podcast with Matt Kelly called The Two Mats. The Two Mats. And please also pick up the latest issue of Prospect, which is our double summer special where you can read Matt's article on Oppenheimer and nuclear culture, as well as our cover story by Guy Standing about the monarchy's underwater empire, journalist Hella Pick on Austrian anti-Semitism, and a conversation between Kate Rayworth and Sam Fankhauser about whether green growth is the future. And while you're here, why not subscribe to something slightly different? Prospect Lives is a monthly series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, including Sheila Hancock, Sarah Collins, and Mike Brearley. It's honestly a joy. Sometimes it will make you laugh, sometimes it will make you cry, but it will definitely give you a snapshot of the lives of people who live differently to you. Just search Prospect Lives wherever you get your podcast, or click on the link in the show notes of this episode. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.